Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. This is the first part of a two-part conversation that Brian and I had with Dr. Dylan Rodriguez. In this episode, we talked about why Dr. Rodriguez believes that abolition is our obligation, the development of anti-Black algorithms used to keep people in prison, what it means to be vulnerable in the context of doing this work, and how vulnerability is the starting point for an abolitionist practice, and the profound impact that Dr. Robert Allen's book, Black Awakening in Capitalist America, had on shaping Dylan's own thinking. We also talk about the ways that academia declares institutional solidarity with white supremacy, and how some academics are the planners and architects of domestic war. Dr. Rodriguez reminds us that terror is not a thing that you can fix with training, and he tells us what conditions he places on conversations about prison reform. Dylan Rodriguez is president of the American Studies Association 2020 to 2021. He served as the faculty elected chair of the UC Riverside Academic Senate from 2016 to 2020, and he is a professor at the University of California, Riverside. He spent the first 16 years of his career in the Department of Ethnic Studies, serving as chair from 2009 to 2016, and joined the Department of Media and Cultural Studies in 2017. Dylan's thinking, writing, teaching, and scholarly activist labors address the complexity and normalized proliferation of historical regimes and logics of anti-Black and racial colonial violence in everyday state, cultural, and social formations. His work raises the question of how insurgent communities of people inhabit oppressive regimes and logics in ways that enable the collective genius of rebellion, survival, abolition, and radical futurity. What forms of shared creativity emerge from conditions of duress, and how do these insurgencies envision and practice transformations of power and community? In addition to co-editing the field-shaping anthology, Critical Ethnic Studies, A Reader by Duke University Press, published in 2016, Dylan is the author of two books, Forced Passages, Imprisoned Radical Intellectuals, and a U.S. Prison Regime, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2006, and Suspended Apocalypse, White Supremacy, Genocide, and a Filipino Condition, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2009. His next book, White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare, and the Logic of Racial Genocide, is forthcoming from the Fordham University Press in the fall of 2020 and will be followed in 2021 by White Reconstruction 2. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm very excited to talk to you today. I know Kim is too. Um, I thought maybe just a good place to start would be to ask you to just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the focus of your work for anyone who maybe is not familiar with you. Sure, absolutely. So I I would, for the purpose of this discussion, I, I would start by saying that I've been a student and eventually a teacher, a follower, a leader an organizer, a creator, uh, you know, an observer, uh, somebody who's followed the obligations and accountabilities of, of abolitionist struggle for uh, almost 25 years. I came up in uh, the Bay Area as a graduate student, was invited to be part of the original founding collective that organized critical resistance. Uh, originally, it was a conference. It turned into an organization, obviously. 
And uh, when, when I came on board that project in, in the summer of 1997, I think it was, I was, um, I, I, was, I was fresh and new to the entire project of trying to, at that point, challenge, resist, and overthrow the prison industrial complex. And, and by the time the conference rolled around in the fall of 1998, it was slowly becoming clear that the politics that we were pushing for at its best was actually an abolitionist politics. And then I started learning a lot more from there from radical attorneys, but especially from political prisoners, former political prisoners, uh, incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, and, and, uh, and a handful of, of radical activists and scholars as to what the traditions and obligations of abolitionist struggle actually were. So I've, I've been thinking and, and working within that tradition, or trying to anyways, since that time. And um, I started a job at University of California, Riverside in 2001, been trying to carry forward some of the scholarly and, and, and pedagogical parts of abolition into my daily job, but also trying to challenge the carceral policing regime of the university as well, which I think is deep which I think we're seeing come up really powerfully in this, in this specific moment. I'm, I'm happy to touch, touch, touch uh, at some point during the conversation about what I think is a budding movement toward police abolition in the UC system, University of California system. Uh, so I've been trying to carry that with me into my daily job, but I've also remained, I've tried to remain accountable and, and connected to various forms of, of abolitionist struggle. Um, and, and particularly within the black radical tradition, I think, I think this is a really key point that folks need to understand is that the points of origin for abolition are, are, are both grounded in the struggles against anti-black racial plantation slavery, but, but in all forms of anti-black uh, violence, anti-black systemic oppression, resistance, um, you know, ontological denigration, everything else that's, that's pretty much accompanied the structure of what we call civilization, meaning the Americas, this particular hemisphere and so forth. So um, other than that, I, I write a lot. I think a lot. I talk a lot. I enjoy talking to folks in forums like this very much. Um, I love that I can speak my mind and speak freely here. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've written a couple books. Um, I, the, the, the book I did, the first book I did was, was called Forced Passages, and it was an engagement with the tradition of radical and revolutionary incarcerated uh, intellectuals, scholars, writers, poets, organizers. Um, and then uh, I, I did a second book on the kind of aftermath of the U.S. genocidal occupation and conquest of the Philippines, and I've got, um, I, I co-edited a book called uh, Critical Ethnic Studies, a Reader, uh, that kind of laid out the terms for critical ethnic studies, which a uh, central part of which is abolition and, and, and a kind of radical approach to carceral studies and, and studies of policing. And um, I'm, I'm thrilled to say that I have a, uh, my third single-authored book is coming out in the fall from Fordham University Press, and it's got a real simple title. It's called White Reconstruction. And some of the themes I'm sure I'll, I want to talk with you all today are, are, are present in that book, too. So anyway, that's a short introduction. I've been 19 years now as a professor in the University of California system going on 20. That's incredible. Thank you so much for that. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the work you're doing at UC around policing. Uh, do you want to expand upon that a little bit more and tell us what's going on at UC right now? So first of all, I should be really clear that there's a shitload going on in the UC system. I, there's no way I could do justice to everything that's going on. Um, I will say also that perhaps the most, one of the most uh, morbidly remarkable but unsurprising things that's gone down in summer of 2020 was the UCLA administration opening up Jackie Robinson baseball field, baseball stadium of all things to the LAPD to, um, uh, to serve as a, as a temporary site of jailing and incarceration for uh, people that were in the streets protesting the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, 
et cetera, and so on and so forth, as we know, as we grieve and as we mourn, uh, that the LAPD took took that field with the approval, apparent approval and consent of the UCLA administration. And there's been a you know big movement at the UCLA campus around that. That's uh, the divest invest movement. And they've been pushing around divesting and redistributing funds around UC policing. Um, that same thing has been picked up all over the University of California system. I'm, I'm really proud to say that the way it's been picked up at UC Riverside, where I work, has been black student led. It's been led by black students. Um, it's been, it's been, I think, affirmed and amplified by um, allies and folks working in solidarity with black students, including other students. Uh, I think five, more than five dozen student organizations have endorsed what black students have been struggling, are, are now struggling for at UC Riverside, uh, a, a piece of which is movements toward a redistribution and reparation that uh, so-called defunds the UCR police, but really abolishes the UCR police um, and the UC police departments more generally. Uh, and, and, and folks need to understand really clearly at the campuses in the UC system, if anybody listening to the podcast you know, works there, that the abolition of UCPD, is, it's a good thing for almost everybody. The project of doing that is a good thing for almost everybody. You're talking about a UC police budget that has, I believe it's more than doubled in the last 10 or 11 years. And, and um, as probably almost anybody listening to this knows that the, the presence of a militarized UC police department on the campuses pretty much creates a, an apartheid logic on campus for mm. students, staff, and sometimes faculty, shoot, sometimes administrators, um, particularly black folks who experience the police as a terror generating organ, you know, terror generating apparatus within the university. And then everyone else who seems to experience it more or less as um, as, as a protective apparatus. So it's, you have two different experiences that go down on the UC campus. And what folks are doing right now is really bringing that to the surface, saying that's not acceptable. That's not tolerable. It's not sustainable. And we're not and we're not taking it. we need to be liberated from this oppressive anti black um, and white supremacist you know, infrastructure of campus community. So that's going on. And, and then the last thing I'll say is this, this actually is remarkable to me. Um, I'm, I'm the chair of our academic Senate division at UC Riverside. And so every month I go to something called the academic council, which is the system-wide meeting of, um, of all the chairs of academic senates from around the University of California, as well as some of the system-wide academic senate leadership. We were able to successfully pass by a vote, um, I believe it was a 15 to two vote. So it was near unanimous vote, which is, which is again, that's remarkable. Um, on a set of recommendations that on Monday were passed forward to the UC president, Janet Napolitano, um, of course, the, uh, the former Secretary of Homeland Defense, um, uh, sorry, of Homeland Security. And, and, and the, it's a set of five recommendations that lead off with a recommendation to move toward minimizing and or abolishing the UC police department. So, so the academic Senate, which is, you know, it, it's not traditionally known as a radical body at all. Um, but we're in a historical moment where abolition has gained so much traction that you had the overwhelming majority and, and near unanimity of the Senate leadership, faculty Senate leadership in the UC system, voting in favor of a set of recommendations to the UC administration to not only rethink the, uh, the security and community infrastructure of the UC system, but to actively work toward the creative project of abolishing them. And, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll say that that a lot of the themes that come up in, in your podcast um, from, the, from the different folks that have been on this podcast, a lot of those ideas were front and center in that debate and in that discussion as people started to struggle to really get their heads around how it is that abolition of the police is an enormously creative and beautiful project that means mm -hmm. that you're rethinking how universities and communities operate. And, and it's not the, the kind of caricatured um, 
the caricatured, you know, straw person version that a lot of right wingers and liberals are throwing out um, right now in social media and in the mainstream media and so forth. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's that's the project, and and it's of course spreading everywhere. But, uh, but those are things that are going on, you know, at, at the at the moment in which we're having this conversation, in part. That's incredible. That's amazing. It's it's really amazing to see this movement, especially gain steam on school campuses. Um, you know, to see that as a location where like a lot of the energy is being directed and where a lot of we're see, you know, the changes that we're seeing happening are happening at school campuses of all different levels and across the country, I think is really amazing. Um, well, well, Brian, but Brian, yeah, Brian let me let me let me let me say this, though. Let me say this, though, because as, as much as as much as the, what I just said, I think induces a sense of optimism. Um, mm-hmm. which, which I think it should, right? Like, like it has to be a radical optimism. We have to keep pushing forward on the horizons of what we can imagine, what we do politically and practically every single fucking day, right? So, like I'm, right. I'm saying, that's that's a good kind of optimism. I, I want to caution all of us to not be naive, okay? Because here's the thing that happens at every single institution in which uh, the, the 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 discussion of defunding the police, which is a kind of the hegemonic, the dominant term right now, is defund the police. That some people mm-hmm. are saying divest, right? Uh, that language is already in the process of being appropriated by various kinds of administrators, elected officials, pundits, academics, um, and and other well-meaning folks, right? Activists, you know, grassroots community leaders, and so mm-hmm. forth. But it, but it's being interpreted in a manner that is not going it, it's not only not going to lead to the abolition police it will it will actively undermine efforts towards police abolition by way of expanding other forms of policing that don't involve the police mm-hmm. exactly follow me exactly so, no yeah. Yeah. yeah i'm so glad yeah. you said that i know weeks ago um you know one of the things that that i said on twitter and you know it's like i'm i'm someone who like pops in and out of twitter um <laughs> sometimes it's just that's like that's probably healthy it is it is for at least for my own health and and probably you know doing it as a public service too because if i if i said everything that i was thinking on twitter um there there would be issues but um <laughs> one of the things that you know i raised and it, it just seems like you know we're constantly having the same conversation especially on on social media you know for years i've been pointing out how um temple university where i used to teach and you know where i graduated from you know i have two degrees from from that institution um has and and they brag about this like you know uh, on their you know website um that temple university has the largest police force in the country Right. That a university campus is boasting that it has the largest police force. And one of the things that, you know, or there are many things that I observed over the years, um, you know, having taught there and, you know, again, coming at it from, you know, public policy perspective um, and as an urbanist, you know, someone's interested in communities and a relationship between, you know, town and gown. Right. And uh, all that nonsense that the police on campus were really, you know, operating at a, in a way, as you said, you know, to protect some people and to basically ensure that the campus was free from other people, right? So it's and, like- and, here, and, and, and just to interject, they don't fucking protect anybody. That's, that's anybody. part of this, right? Like there's all kinds of violence that goes on on these campuses, including temples that, you know, interpersonal exploitation, sexual violence, 
the, the police are not an effective apparatus to do apparatus to do any of that right but but like people feel that way they think you know, they well that's and that's the thing that's the, the the point that i was about to make in terms of yeah. you know what, what i was saying on on social is that you know um it was a, it, it acts as a signal to parents right particularly white suburban parents who wanted to send their kids to this you know urban campus right but they were scared that you know i mean temple is in the middle of north philadelphia right a black community a historically black community um and the <laughs> the way the campus is set up and this has happened in a lot of places it's not just you know in north philly or in philly in general because you also have you know penn which pioneered that model um, and Drexel, its neighbor right there that basically has gentrified the surrounding community, pushed those people out. And, you know, it, it's at Temple when I was working um, way back, and this is going back maybe 20 years, I was working at the, um, you know, um, a small business development center and, uh, you know, as an intern at the time. And I remember seeing the blueprints for the community and how Temple had basically bought up, you know, blocks and blocks of residential housing, you know, and basically the plan was to demolish all of those homes and people were living in those homes at the time um, to, you know, put up uh, what's now, you know, the Leah Corris Center, which is, you know, the events um, center, uh, the, you know, 7-Eleven, um, <laughs> the parking lot that now exists, you know, up there and a lot of other things that, you know, just weren't there before. All of that stuff is on the site of people's homes. And, you know, they right behind my office, they also demolished um, the housing projects that were there, Norris Homes. And, um, you know, the function of, of the police and of their private um, security, right, because we also need to include private security in that um, was basically to, you know, make sure that the campus uh, appeared to be a nice kind of, you know, a nice safe place, quote unquote, safe place, uh, especially when they were doing campus tours, right? So they would make sure that when the kids came on to campus that, you know, um, the I'm talking about the neighborhood kids, you know, if they brought their bikes or they were skateboarding and, you know, doing whatever, just hanging out. Like there was nowhere else to hang out and there were great places to skateboard on campus um, that those kids were actively, you know, shooed away. Like that was the function of um, of the police and, and security on campus. So I'm glad to see that there's, you know, that movement. But at the same time, um, I completely agree with you. I caution folks to not just, you know, kind of sit back and say, oh, okay, well, you know, we're, we're good. We circulated a petition or, you know, we've started this conversation because um, they're, they're not going to budge that easily. Like there's a lot of work that needs oh, to happen. Tell me about it. Well, 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 I think I think in in addition to not budging so easily, even worse, what what they and by that I'm talking about the the kind of interface of university administrations, um, uh, kind of kind of company faculty. Let, let me put it that way: company yeah. faculty, right? Um, uh, and and the state, meaning meaning both the police and oftentimes state the state that funds these institutions but really the state the state is generally symbiotic and supportive of these institutions of higher learning especially places like temple what, what what's even worse than them not budging is that they are fully open to absorbing and working with 
all these fucking public statements that are coming out from different university and faculty bodies, including departments, including, organ, you know, university academic or you know, academic national organizations and so forth. But can I please ask people out there listening to stop issuing statements? Oh, my I mean, God. just for a minute. <laughs> Thank just you. for a minute. No, no. I, look, look, look. There's a there's a place and time and a moment in which statements are really, really important. Right. They mm-hmm. raise consciousness. They, they unsettle things. They challenge dominant discourse, whatnot. But. When you're in a period of heightened insurrection and rebellion in which thought is accelerating, I'm talking critical, radical abolitionist thought is collectively accelerating at such a massively impressive pace among all kinds of folks. You know what I mean? I'll tell you all, I'll tell you all the proudest um, moment I, have, I, I ever had on social media was uh, this, the, the badass feminist black radical rapper, no name, citing me. I'm like, holy shit, yeah. right? Like, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who, I never would have dreamed that, but that was, she, you know, I already liked her shit, but now she's officially my favorite rapper, just out of, just out of she's my favorite rapper. Um, but I'm saying when, when you're in a moment when all that's going on and this, and, this, and this kind of radical analysis is spreading, you know, like fire in the best way, we don't need more academic proclamations around, um, you know, solidarity with notions, you know, trite notions of black civil rights, of black freedom, of racial equity, of diversity. We just we need, we need to hold it, it. We need to hold back from 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 doing that and and actually maybe maybe shut the fuck up for a minute. You know what I mean? Maybe shut the fuck up for just a minute, and actually try to build some basic structures of collective political education and accountability. Yeah. To to what it, to what's going on in the summer 2020, right? Because the, yeah. the the one thing that institutions like universities abhor is being held accountable to their declarations. Right. Mm-hmm. So so you can go all day. You can do you can go all day making all kind of flowery sounded diversity and, and black solidarity declarations from different academic spaces. But absent actual uh, attempts to build solidarity and accountability with black organizations, with black movements, um, with abolitionist movements and so forth, it really doesn't mean much. It's a bunch of fucking noise. And, and mm-hmm. university administrations in the state are totally willing to absorb all that stuff to undertake. Uh, piecemeal actions, not even reforms, but just piecemeal infrastructural actions that will absorb all of that discontent and, and morph it into yet another expansion of the university project while, you know, ultimately reproducing university policing. Um, so so that, that's one favor I wanted to ask people is, is, is to rethink your next public statement in this moment. I mean, there'll be another moment where public statements are important, but there's just too many of them. I think I've read close to a dozen of them just from my, just from my campus. And they're just everywhere. And some of them are really great and most of them are not. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) Like it it just, it reminded me of something that um, Joy James said, um, you know, in in a talk that she gave at Brown um, about a year ago and uh, was, you know, re uh, or posted again um, on Abolition Journal. and I'm, I'm part of the, the journal collective and uh, so's, uh, so's Dr. James, but she said, if it's on the menu of the academy, um, that it's really not radical, right? Like if it's on, mm-hmm. if, if academics are, you know, are doing it or not so much if academics are doing it, but if the academy is, um, is looking at that thing, uh, then, you know, it's, it, it's part of, you know, and I'm, going to fuck this up royally, probably, um, a part of the de-radicalization project that is going on, right? Like, it's just not, 
going to take yeah. us very far. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm I, I'm totally familiar with what you're talking about because I, I, you know, I, I I've worked with Joy in the past, and I'm part of that same abolition journal collective that that you're part of. And so yeah, so we're we're together on that piece. Um, and I'll say it's a struggle, right? Because that analysis is is 100% correct. That the logic of the academy is to uh, kind of expropriate things. It's to expropriate mm-hmm. things and turn them and turn them into objects uh, into objects of knowledge, um, rather than rather than to kind of take a position of intellectual and for that matter scholarly humility and mm-hmm. to try to figure out what a what 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 praxis would look like, right? Yeah. Alongside different forms of liberation and radical movements, praxis is hard as shit. Right. And, and what it means, too, for a lot of us that are paid to think and paid to write and paid to teach all the time is suddenly our expertise needs to put, be put at the service of somebody or something else. Mm-hmm. And, and most academic, most academics in, you know, Western research universities, you know, the Western world civilization with a capital C and civilizations research universities. We're generally used to our expertise being put at the service of a fucking foundation. Or, or we're under this delusion that we're basically contractors to the university and that our knowledge is all our own and it belongs to us and we, you know, have property rights to it. So mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're talking about, when you're talking about uh, other, other traditions and genealogies of, of radical scholarship that intersects with this thing called the academy, which I don't believe in anymore, by the way. Um, I, believe, I believe in some, that something like a university exists as an infrastructure that needs to be contested, and I'll talk about that in a second. But I think that the academy, this thing called the academy, is is a bullshit myth. I think it's a colonial myth. I think it's a chattel slave myth. Um, I don't feel like, you know, I and many others have ever really belonged to it. And um, the struggle, in part, is to is to disavow our desires to be acknowledged, recognized, and um, embraced by it. So, so that that's part of this. And I'll also say this: there's there's the academic logic that you just cited by way of Joy James. There's the academic logic. And then there's also these other logics that confront and oppose the academic lo- the academic logic, and th- those are the the logics of intellectual, scholarly, and creative production that come out of these long lineages of of black of black studies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, feminist and feminist and trans black studies, right? Um, abolitionist black studies uh, of native and indigenous studies, and so forth. So there, there's struggles around seizing particular infrastructures. Uh, to create sites of relative autonomy and support, um, meaning, meaning infrastructure, for these intellectual, these insurgent intellectual traditions. Now, that is always in tension, in, in a tension. It's always in a tension with the academic logic we're talking about, right? Because in the end, um, folks can actually build a career out of this stuff. I mean, I have. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I was in ethnic studies for my first 16 years. Um, I'm in media and cultural studies now, but, but I'm still doing ethnic studies stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm adjoined to it in that way. So it's a tension that we have to inhabit. So I think that's part of what Joy is saying. And this, this brings me to the point that I was also going to make in response to, um, Kim, what you were just saying about how Temple University does this whole kind of, you know, fascistic thing, bragging about its police force. The reason why I think there's a responsibility for people who inhabit universities uh, to, to take on struggle in different ways, including ways within the university, is because um, – what universities do, what Temple University is doing when it boasts about its police force, it is making an announcement of a normalized state of war, primarily against black people in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and, and to a secondary extent against black people on campus and others, okay? So, so 
when, when, when Temple University, and this is Temple University saying this, not the cops, it's Temple University saying this. When right. Temple University says, says this shit, it's not the Temple, it, it's UC Riverside, it's UC Berkeley, it's Northwestern, it's Yale, it's all these fucking places, right? Um, when they say these kinds of things, they are declaring solidarity. They're declaring institutional solidarity. They're putting their endowments in solidarity with the militarized protection of white bodily integrity and the secular sanctity of white being and white life. It is nothing less than that. Absolutely. Right. And that and that is that is what the university is. Right. Sorry, that is what the academy is. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what the academy is. And historically it is what the university is. So so that's all to say that for those of us who are employed in these in these sites of violence, right? In these sites of low intensity and sometimes acutely intense warfare, um, universities, we have to analyze and, and occupy them and inhabit them as sites of guerrilla war. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that I mean that in the most in the fullest, most robust sense uh, or conceptualization of guerrilla war. Um, and here's and here's why: university administrators, the police, and the state already treat the university as a site of guerrilla war. They treat it as a as a mm-hmm. site of of you know of counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. Most, most importantly, I mean that that's what that's what you know Joy was talking about in that piece you just mentioned. Universities are are generally a site of counterinsurgency. They're a site they're a site in which particular cultures, knowledges, and even art is produced that is intended to, re- to, to reproduce that secular sanctity of white being and white life, to reproduce anti-black violence and colonization. So the question I have um, for a lot of my friends and colleagues is why so many of us who are employed by universities treat the university as if it is somehow outside of or isolated from the conditions of domestic war. It's actually in the fucking middle of it. Exactly. Right? It is a primary site. It's a primary site. Exactly. So, so, at, so, so we're in a moment right now um, in summer 2020. There's a rising number of people who work in these places, in universities, colleges, so forth, higher education, who, who are fully, who are beginning to fully acknowledge the university in some way as a site of, of low intensity conflict and warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, the rebellions of the summer of 2020 are pushing people, all kinds, students, faculty, staff, and even some administrators are pushing all these folks toward a more realistic, which is to say a more radical and abolitionist analysis of their sites of work. Um, so I think, I think universities are key to that. We need to understand them as uh, you know, constitutive centers through which the generally normalized uh, kind of condition of anti-Black and racial colonial domestic warfare as, as the condition of civilization, as the you know, half millennial condition of civilization is, is reproduced and consolidated all the time. If we understand that, then, then I think we can start to come to terms with what our roles might be, what our skill, the way our skill sets might be put to good use mm-hmm. in, in waging a guerrilla war that at bare minimum will, will push back against counterinsurgency, right? Because sometimes the best thing we can do is to push back against and undermine and challenge counterinsurgency so that the fullest blossoming of, of, of the most beautiful forms of insurgency, feminist insurgency, black radical insurgency, you know, you know, indigenous autonomous insurgency can, can flourish because counterinsurgency is deep and, and universities are central to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you were, were reminding me of um, a meeting that I crashed a couple of uh, years ago, more than a couple of years ago now, probably like three years ago um, with a UC professor, I won't mention which campus, but um, UC professor who was uh, giving a presentation on risk assessments in, uh, in California, 
right? And how different uh, police departments, um, you know, were using the risk assessment tool that she and her grad students had developed, right? I'm very proud of this. And there was like very little pushback in, you know, in a room. This was to, you know, a room of, um, you know, some elected officials, but other, you know, um, just, uh professional uh, folks working in, you know, in government. Um, and, and, you know, it was just like one of those moments where it, it's like, I one, I felt really triggered being in that space because I, I'd stepped away from the academy um, for a lot of different reasons. But being there, you know, um, especially as an activist organizer, and I'm not saying that you can't be an activist organizer if you're in the academy, um, but, you know, just play along uh, for a second, <laughs> you know, it's like, not being connected or not having a university affiliation and then being in a space where you have someone who's standing in front of a room, you know, um, and, and that doctor, whatever carries weight, right. Carries weight with a lot of people. And there's no real pushback, um, on, you know, on this idea and really just saying, you know, they were outlining how flawed the risk assessment tool is and people were just kind of like, oh, okay, well, whatever, you know, and just like, okay, well, what about, you know, race and gender and those things? Oh, well, you know, it's, it, it doesn't really look at those things, but, you know, what we found is that it's it mostly, you know, the people who are, um, who come out at the other end are mostly black and brown, right? And I'm just sitting yeah. in the room, like wanting to fucking scream and just be like, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? And it's like, so I think that that's also part of it. We don't have to go too deep into that yeah. at all. Just, well, you know. well, no, but, but let me say, let me say that, there, that you identified something that has obsessed me for about 15 years now. Um, and that is the, the, logic, the logic of these kinds of, of algorithms, right? These kind of criminalizing algorithms, let's call them what they are. They're anti-Black, they're, you know, anti-queer, they're misogynist, they're all that stuff, right? They're anti-poor, they're all that stuff. Um, the logic that drives those things is, is at the bare minimum, it is proto-genocidal, mm -hmm. okay? Because that's the whole point of the algorithm is to identify populations that ought to be criminalized and policed and incarcerated, which is to say socially liquidated, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, in many, in many cases, they are physically liquidated um, because what algorithms and um, other method criminalizing methods like that actually accomplish is they, again, reaffirm the condition of war in which it's very clear who the targets are. Okay, so Absolutely. so on the one hand, on the one hand, it does that. It 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 reproduces this kind of logic of genocide that is central to um, the modern academy, really. Right, the modern academy is driven by that. It's driven by logics of conquest, of genocide, and of chattel. But but um, we tend not to say that. And the reason is because, or at least I think part of a big part of the reason is because the way that that um, the concept of of genocide and really of, of things like massive, you know, war crime, right? And, and if we want to call it war crime, but ma massive warfare by the state, it's, it's driven by, those concepts are driven by a notion that the casualties that are created by these structures have to have somehow been intentionally planned by some conspiratorial group of policymakers, elected officials, cops, or others, right? That they have to have planned from the outset, or the academic in this case, right? The researcher. They have to plan from the outset, oh, we're going to target um, poor black people. We're going to target 
unhoused people. We're going to target, you know, um, trans sex workers in this particular algorithm, in this particular criminalizing method. And then out the other end comes, you know, these populations that are being policed, that are being killed, that are being incarcerated. It generally doesn't work that way, right? But part of the problem is that we fixate on intent. Right. So, so another, another part of an abolitionist, in my view, another part of an abolitionist kind of pedagogy, theory, practice is to always come at intent um, with, a sense that, with a sense that it is actually corollary, right? It is secondary. Intent is a secondary facet when you are dealing with casualties. Let's fixate on casualties. What is it that institutional logics generate that make casualties asymmetrical? If we, can, if we can get at that, right, if we can get at a, a classroom or whatever, a lecture hall like that one, like you were just talking about, Kim, if we can get at that and say, okay, so what you just said, Professor, is that, is that this criminalizing method that you've developed produces asymmetrical criminalization, right, which is to say asymmetrical casualties. And, and let's frame that with an abolitionist concept of, of racialized, anti-black, and racial colonial domestic war. Then what we're also talking about here is asymmetrical warfare, which is a precursor to genocide, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, if, if, we're able, if we're able to do that, then maybe folks will at least be held accountable for their shit, right? R rather, rather, than, rather than kind of um, be allowed this entitlement to stay within this artificially isolated mm -hmm. and safe and entitled sphere of, of purely academic discourse in which the casualties that they are have a direct hand in in generating these asymmetrical casualties that they have a direct hand in creating um do not rest on their shoulders it becomes an academic problem in the most abstracted sense of the term right so we don't think about these folks as actual planners architects and theorists of domestic war but that's exactly what they are right Absolutely. so 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 what i what i'm what i'm saying is that for any of us who are actually interested in projects of liberation of autonomy you know of self-determination and all the different complex ways that we think and argue about those things right but but i think there's a lot of people listening to this that are that are engaged in projects that try to do those that struggle around those things then then we need to embrace that that's the that that war in fact is the context we are in mm -hmm. right that the guerrilla war guerrilla war is the context we are in and and we need to embrace that as a generalized kind of template a generalized approach a generalized analytic um, to pretty much all the work we do. So like, we got to know what our skill set is. We got to know where we stand. Um, you know, a long time ago, I realized that, you know, if, if I'm going to take that analytics, if I'm going to take that framework of guerrilla war seriously, then probably 100% of what I do is going to have to be involved in the above ground struggle. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to be invited to join the underground. Although, you know, if I am out, that's a whole other decision, right? But I'm probably going to be, you know, and, and, and me and many others that have particular skill sets, we probably have to be involved in a particular form. Of, and, and again, that is no less valuable. It's in fact, in some cases, it's incredibly um, uh, important, right? Because yeah. the work the work that you're doing in different guerrillas, and I'm talking K through 12, I'm talking all the different sites that people inhabit um, that, that are listening to us right now that we, we need to understand how those institutions need to be re-inhabited by us, right? How they need to be held accountable by us. But, um, but yeah, that example you give to me is typical. That is the university. That's not exceptional. That, that shit happens exactly. every fucking day. Exactly, exactly. No, it was just, you know, it, it stood out in my mind because, um, you know, this is, it, it, it was happening um, 
right around the same time that uh, there were uh, testimonials, um, you know, or testimony being given by young people, um, you know, before uh, in LA, the county, um, the county board, city council, basically, you know, and they were giving testimony about um, their loved ones having been killed by, um, you know, by the LAPD. So this meeting happened immediately after, you know, after that. And um, it was kind of like, it was not a public meeting. It was not announced. Um, And they really didn't want us there to begin with. And they told us that if we were going to be there, we couldn't actually say anything. Um, And and people did, people spoke up, Um, but we were told to be quiet. Right. At the same time. So, you know, we raised objections and, you know, it's like, again, coming at it from, you know, from an academic perspective and knowing how funding works. Right. Like this person already got a grant. Right. For doing this work. Um, but they were also getting paid by, you know, the various uh, police departments. Right. Or their project was being, you know, further funded by these various police departments who were, you know, uh, piloting this, you know, um, th- this risk assessment tool. Um, and, you know, it, and the focus was, you know, very obvious. It was all of the people that we were just, you know, in another meeting talking about and, you know, who were pouring out their heart and souls and crying oftentimes about being targeted by the police. And, you know, this white woman professor stands up there and just kind of gives this, you know, presentation, like it's no big You're deal. You're about to say her name. You're about I, to say her name. I, 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 you know, I had I have to stop myself. I I mean, because I'm like, yeah, it just, you know, it, it was just it was really bad. It was really, really bad. And um, you know, the the whole conversation around, you know, um, well, this will be used to determine um who gets out of prison, you know, whether we let people out of jail, um, whether, you know, uh someone has to post bail or, you know, or they can be let out on their own recognizance and all this stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like I just I wanted to scream and I'm like, and this is the problem, right? So when we think about you know, like the role of the academy and all of this. And this is not, I know Brian's like, what? All his questions. He's like, we, he has some really good <laughs> That's um, all right. No, I'm like, ra- I'm like wrapped here. Just but, like, you know, I think, that, I think that this is an important part of it because we need to, we need to understand these institutions, not as something separate, as you pointed out, but as part of the problem and the kind of deep interrogation that we're talking about, not just interrogation, but also the actively fighting back. This stuff um, becomes really difficult, right? I mean, I left for, you know, the reasons that I left and, you know, I've talked about it in in other episodes um, and I don't think I'll ever be able to go back um, into that space because of, you know, my very public critiques of, you know, of the academy and, uh, you know, of particular institutions as well, that makes you unemployable, right? So <laughs> I think that if you want, you know, if you want to have a career, that there's ways to to do that within the academy. But I think that that's also, you know, that one, that's also part of Joy's critique I, in, and part of what you're saying as well, that you can have, you know, you can have, you um, longevity uh in, in that space and do well um, i mean i mean it it takes it takes a piece out of you every single day and you have to have a community right i mean mm-hmm. that's the only way to sustain it if you don't if you don't have community if you don't have community it's it, it, I mean, it it'll break you i mean yeah. it'll break you like it absolutely will break you and and i want to say kim i'm just i'm just listening to your 
your account, which I, which I think I've heard you talk about or maybe read, you, read, read, read your writing about this before. I mean, in the context of this conversation, Kim, you're talking about an encounter with terror. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's what you're talking about, both in the instance of this, um, of, of, this, of this academic doing that research in that lecture hall, and, and also you know, that, that experience of listening to folks talking about the LAPD. Your, your response to all that shit is, is a response of somebody who has um, been enveloped in, in, in a particular period by the apparatus, the infrastructure, and, and uh, the feelings of terror. And, and this is what I think we have to, we have to really try to amplify um, right now in summer 2020, is, is the rebellions and the insurrections and the movements and these different forms of reform that are now starting to get some traction, um, they're framed around police assassinations of black folks, right? That's one, that's one critical part of this, but it's not all of it. Mm-hmm. The totality of it, and what you and what you see, and look, and look, this is what you see folks saying on the street, like literally on the street, um, in in response to what's going on with policing right now. Folks are talking about police terror. They are not simply talking about police murders and assassinations. They are not even just talking about police violence. They are talking about a condition of terror that uh, in which the police are a primary generative institution. They're not the exclusive and only one, but they are a primary one. That police are an institution that generates a climate and condition of terror. And and what we're seeing and what we're hearing, what we're feeling and what some of us are doing is we're letting folks know that what terror does, police terror, anti-black terror does, is it divides the world up into two parts, three parts, and more parts. That's what it does. It means the world is experienced fundamentally differently depending on which side of that terror you inhabit. Um, terror, 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 terror is not a thing that can be reformed. You mm-hmm. cannot, you cannot fix, you cannot fix terror with de-escalation or diversity training. And, and this is, this, I'll be saying this till the day I die. That that cop, you know, that cop who killed Richard Brooks. He had just taken de-escalation training a couple months before, right? And and what did de-escalation training do for that fucker? It put him back on the street. Exactly. Right. It exactly. gave him back his badge, and his, it, it 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 made sure that gun stayed in his holster. Yeah. So so not only not only is reform not adequate to to fixing the condition of terror, or or for that matter, police violence, but but police reform generally is um, what further legitimates policing and right. usually expands the policing apparatus. Right. Mm-hmm. So terror can't be eliminated. You can't eliminate terror by starting new forms of community policing. You can't do that, right? Um, you know, terror is something that, that requires, that, that has to be eliminated, right? You have to abolish terror, and you have to figure out what you need to do to abolish terror. Um, that's, that's the baseline. That's the start, right? And, and, and that's what I say, that's what I've been saying in every room I've been in talking about this shit. It's like, I, I'm only willing to talk about reforms if there is a basic agreement that whatever reforms we're going to agree to must be situated in a way, must be structured in a way that it enhances the capacity for people to abolish terror, mm-hmm. right? By and, lar- by and large, reforms, you know, overwhelmingly, they do not do that, primarily because of who the architects of reform are. Primarily what they do is they further legitimate that terror and, norm- and try to normalize it, right? So we're in a moment right mm-hmm. now where black-led insurrection is denormalizing that terror 
that is otherwise so fundamental, so normal, so paradigmatic to the so-called American way of life that it's, it's basically unspoken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but it's, it's those silences that, that are killing us. Right. It's like it's it's that silence that is um, corrosive. You know, it's uh, as we're as as we were, you know, as as I was getting ready for our conversation today, you know, I was texting Brian and telling him I was, you know, like on fire, super excited and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, but I'm also really, um, really angry, really fucking pissed right now. My oldest son is uh, sitting in the shoe for some bullshit, um, you know, that that CEOs contrived against him. Um, And (laughs) I just got a letter from him and they actually they actually had a hearing where they told him last week that there was no evidence against him, but because they believed that he was involved in some nonsense, even though the person that was involved said, you know, wrote a statement and he has a copy of that statement that said he wasn't involved. They're saying, well, we're going to keep you in the shoe anyway, because we think that you were involved. I mean, this is not a system that you can reform. Right. So I'm like, I'm bringing all of that energy, all that anger, which is probably why I'm, you know, forgetting like little shit, because anger and trauma and stress that fucks with your memory. Um, and, and I'm not saying that just because I'm, you know, had these, uh, couple of moments in, in this conversation, but it's something that definitely, um, that, that is sitting with me is very present, is very much a part of all of this stuff that's happening. And I remember, um, you know, a few weeks ago or maybe a a couple months ago now, I don't, uh, quite have the, the date when you did the conversation, um, the, uh, the freedom course with, uh, Dean Spade and Mariam Kaba and dream defenders and, um, Ujima, um, medics where you yep. talked about, um, mutual aid, you know, and, uh, Dr. Henderson's, uh, children, you could hear them in the background and it was just lovely. Cause I'm like, I, That's I right. can't, that's you know, right. like I'm sitting here folding laundry when I was listening to it. I came back and I sat down actually when a kid started screaming and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And you interrupted and you said, well, wait a minute. You know, like that's real. Like that's a part of all of this. Like we cannot separate, you know, what's happening in our personal lives, especially if you're black and brown in this country. Right. From all of this other shit that's going on, because it's all part of the same thing. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website, www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. 
We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.